Father, we just continue this morning to worship you. Father God, we would ask that your spirit would work in our hearts. Father, our desire is to worship you in spirit and in truth. Father, we're very aware that we walked into this room today really with nothing in our hands. There's, there's no work that we have done. There's no great accomplishments. There's, there's no service. There's, no, there's just nothing that we bring into this room except our soul, our very being. And Father, that's what we present to you this morning. Just our love. And we thank you that you first loved us. Thank you that you take us just the way we are. You're not interested in riches or fame or degrees or All you're interested in is this creation you've made, each one of us. You designed us to be with you. You designed us to be in a love relationship with you. You designed us to spend eternity with you. And Father, this morning we are in awe of this great grace, this great gift, the way you've just drawn us in. And so, Lord, just as you sense our hearts this morning, would you be pleased with the songs we've been singing? That you would see inside of our hearts the the love that we have for you. And, Father God, as we look into the things that you would say to us this morning, we just give you thanks. We thank you for your holy word. Thank you that uh, over hundreds and hundreds of years you put this together in, in your own time, in your own way, through your own servants so that we would know a little bit more about you. Father, everything about your word is, is just amazing to us. So, Lord, it's just with great joy this morning that we give you praise and we give you thanksgiving and uh, Thank you for the joy that you give to us just because of you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The book of Colossians, if you'll remember when we first started it, the first uh, couple verses, what does it talk about? It talks about grace. God's grace. Paul is asking God's grace to be poured out. On the people, and then of course, the very last verse in Colossians talks about again Paul just saying God's grace to be on the people in that little fellowship. And in so many ways, we see God's grace just coming through in this incredible letter that He's written to these young believers. Do you remember Onesimus? 
the runaway slave, and just the grace that was poured out in, as God brought him into his own family and turned his life around 180 degrees. Or we see the, saw the grace that was given to Mark, the companion of Paul and Barnabas going out on the mission field who quit, who didn't, couldn't take it anymore, and he fled back home. And yet God's grace to work through that, bring him back to himself to become an an incredible servant of God. The grace that Paul has for these people, people he's never met, and yet he's pouring out his heart to them in teaching through the letter, but also just through his daily life, through the prayers that he has for these people. And, of course, we saw in chapter 1 about just who Jesus is. The grace of God poured out through the Lord Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, allowing us to come back into a personal relationship with the living God. And it's all, all about this grace, this freedom, this gift. And so the danger is that someone could take that grace out of our hearts, can take that freedom that we have in Christ, and can take us out of this kingdom of light and put us back into darkness, into a bondage to works, trying to prove ourselves, trying to be good enough when we can't. I want to start in the beginning this morning. That means way in front of the book, back to Genesis. We remember that Adam and Eve were in the garden. Perfect fellowship with Almighty God. Seeing him face to face, which we will get to in eternity again. But you know the story. They rebelled. They broke God's laws. And the ramifications of that were swift. They were kicked, in a sense, out of the garden. But in Genesis 3.21, we find this. Remember how they had hidden themselves from God and they'd made little fig leaves to cover themselves and all of this. Genesis 3, 21 says this, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. Where did God get the skins? I love what uh, Arthur Pink said in his commentary on Genesis. By clothing Adam and Eve with these skins, God taught them four lessons. First, that in order for a guilty sinner to approach a holy God, he needed a suitable covering. Second, that the aprons of fig leaves, which their own hands had made, were not acceptable to him. Third, 
that God himself must provide the covering. Fourth, that the necessary covering could only be obtained through death. Death is the wages of sin. And there in those first chapters of Genesis, we see really the gospel story starting to come forth. And it's just in the next chapter, in Genesis chapter 4, Adam and Eve had two sons, and I just want to pick up the story with them. In chapter 4 and verse 2, and again, she bore his brother Abel. So there's Cain and Abel now. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Abel was a keeper of the livestock. He had understood and learned the lessons that his parents had about a proper covering, a proper sacrifice can only happen through death and through the blood of that sacrifice. Cain worked with his own hands. And what he brought to God was not what God had required or requested. He brought to God the works of his own hands. And then it says, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And Cain was very angry, and his his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do Not do well. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. And you know what happens next. And you know how it was all downhill from this point. And we just see that when mankind chooses to go the path of taking their own works before God, it just leads down a road that ends in destruction. Well, if we move a couple thousand years down the road and we come to a letter that Paul is writing to the Galatians, and this is a very, very significant time in the church. The church started in Jerusalem, and there in Jerusalem, the leader became James, the brother of Jesus, and that church was a group of Jews. And they had grown thousands upon thousands upon thousands. And eventually there came Paul and the ministry out to the Gentiles. And the church was growing. 
But then there was a discussion. Actually, it was a conflict. Actually, it was probably a huge argument. And so Paul is writing to the Galatians because they're kind of in the same situation as the Colossians. They're dealing right now in their world, in their lives, with grace and works. And there were people coming in and trying to get them to focus on the works. And so, he's giving a testimony of the conflict that the Apostle Paul had with the Apostle Peter. We find this in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 11. It said, But when Cephas, that's the Apostle Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, the Jewish, before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. This is the Apostle Peter. The circumcision party. These were legalistic Jews. They were called Judaizers. They claimed to follow Christ, but they taught that a Gentile had to be circumcised and follow the Mosaic law before he could be saved. Do you get that? Before he could be saved. And that all believers, Jews and Gentiles alike, had to continue observance of the law in order to maintain their relationship to God. So it wasn't just, it wasn't enough, Jesus' death on the cross. These people had come in and demanded that the law be followed, that people be circumcised. And somehow, the peer pressure of that affected the the Apostle Peter. Gentiles that he had been fellowshipping with, all of a sudden, he turned his back on them. Verse 13, he goes on, he says, And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, that's what we've been talking about. That's what... what, What God is putting into our hearts as we look at this one letter of just the sufficient work of Christ Jesus on the cross alone. Nothing else. Nothing added. Nothing more. And they're fighting that battle right there in that first century. That gospel. When I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, 
but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul goes on just in one chapter later in chapter 5 and he says, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And so we are facing that situation this morning in the church in Colossae. It's the same situation. Paul is talking to them because he's heard that some influences are starting to come into the church that want to add to what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And so, we'll start in verse 16 of chapter 2. And as you remember last week, uh, we hit the first command that Paul had towards, uh, for the folks there that has to do with not letting anyone uh, take them captive. From darkness to light. Don't go back to darkness. Don't go back into law. Don't go back into chains when Christ has set you free. And so now he's giving the second command. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So what's the command? Don't let people judge you. Remember what the context is here? The community that we're talking about? We're actually talking about inside the body of believers, inside the church of Jesus. So what it says is that actually you and I have a tendency to look down on and to judge other people. Now here, he's giving some general things. He's just talking about food and drink. And so the idea is that there were certain things that people were forbidding. If you want to be saved or if you want to be a good Christian, this is forbidden. And if it's food and drink, can you think of how that's been used today? I remember growing up that in, in my part of the United States and the churches that I was in, that you, know, you would not drink. If you, were, if you were saved, if you were a Christian, you would not have a glass of wine. And then I went to Europe and met my brothers and sisters in Europe. And I remember sitting in, the, uh, I don't know, Belgium or France or somewhere with this family, and there's this glass of wine in front of me, and I had all this baggage. It wasn't an issue for them. They loved Jesus, following Jesus. It was a glass of wine. But somewhere in my background, that 
had transferred into guilt issues, demand issues, forbidden issues. And yet, you will not find a place in our word that says, don't drink. You will find where it says, do not get drunk. Do not have excessive amounts of things. But do you see, that's just one example. And so Paul was writing about this to the Romans. So let's look at that in Romans and in chapter 14. Romans chapter 14 and in verse 1, he says this. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. In other words, we all have opinions, don't we? And Paul knows that. And he's saying, don't quarrel over those things that actually are minors and not majors. Opinions. We have opinions, don't we? We have opinions about how a service should be run. We have opinions about clothes that we wear. We have opinions about the type of music that we play. Again, when I was growing up, electric guitars. We have three. The Bible school that I went to did not allow us to go to movies. It was 1977 and Star Wars came out. I remember one of my friends, they kidnapped him. They put a bag over his head, and they took him to the theater. He didn't know where he was until they took the bag off his head, and there he was in a theater. (gasps) Almost lost his salvation right there. (laughs) Opinions that we have. But let's go on to what, what Paul is saying here. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So there is this sense of freedom. If it's written in here, if it's a command of God in here, 100% we follow what God says. But on those areas where he's not made it crystal clear for us, there is freedom, there is different of opinion. And so Paul is saying, don't let... Somebody come and put a burden of guilt and judge your actions when you are free in Jesus. Because if you let them do that, 
then you fall back into bondage. And maybe you start to do what they're saying because of the pressure that they put on. But it has nothing to do with our standing in, for, in front of Almighty God. And so as the command is for us not to let people do that, watch for that, have your radar up, someone starts to put something on you that's not here, just say, thank you for your opinion. And move on. But there is that sense as well for us to be able to ask ourselves the question, are we judging somebody's actions? Are we putting our opinions on somebody else so as to make them feel guilty? And yet it's not something here. It's something that we grew up in. It's something that maybe is part of our culture. We all come from church backgrounds somewhere. And we did things in a certain way in that place. And over time, that system becomes right and wrong in our minds. So we go somewhere else and it's done differently. What do we think? It's wrong. No. It's only wrong if this says it's wrong. Otherwise, it's just different. It's just different. There's a lot of differences in this room. Have you ever just sat and thought about what is the proper way to greet somebody in church on Friday mornings? I mean, if if it's an Arab guy, you would kiss on the cheeks. If there's somebody from the UK, you would kiss the, the opposite sex on the cheeks. Maybe you give a handshake. Maybe you give a hug. You know what's right in your culture. But all of a sudden we come here and it's a bit foggy and it's a bit mixed and maybe you don't even know how to greet somebody. I remember being in Cape Town and I was with this pastor and his wife and I was getting ready to say goodbye to them. And I said, oh, you know, God bless you, goodbye to the wife. She goes, that's not how we do it here. And then she goes, we kiss. And I'm going, excuse me. And she wanted me to kiss her on the lips. And I'm in shock. And her husband was standing there, so I looked to him for help. And he goes, yeah, that's right, that's how we do it here. And I could just feel the blood rising in my head. And with my head, it looked like a red tomato. It's different. It's not right or wrong. It's different. But don't get confused. I guarantee you, if you go to an Arab man and you kiss his wife on the lips, you're going to have a problem. (laughs) I've totally lost my place. Okay, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 18. Don't let anyone take you captive. Don't let anyone pass judgment on you. And now verse 18. Don't let anyone disqualify you. Think about the red card that you get in a football match, disqualified. That's what this is talking about. And so there will be some people who will try to give you a red card. They will try to say to you, you are not good enough. 
you have not had the right spiritual experiences. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So Paul even goes into now to start to even describe the type of people that want to put this garbage on others. And whereas judgment is maybe the actions that we do, but this disqualifying, that is, that is going straight to who we are as a child of the living God. Your experience isn't good enough. What kind of people do this? Well, it says that they're puffed up. They're kind of in their own world. They, they've lost track of who's in charge. And unfortunately, within the Christian world, we have this sense that if you are in ministry, somehow you have to become kind of bigger than life. I remember being at a large Christian uh, booksellers convention. I was going around the booths, and I came to this one booth, and there was this huge banner of this minister. Huge. And in the booth, there were these posters with his picture on them. And then everywhere were books and DVDs with his picture on them. And I just stood there, and I was just looking at this. And the, the guys working at the booth said, oh, welcome to our booth. How can we help you? And I was still kind of in shock. And I, and I just looked, and I just kind of pointed at all of this. And I just said, where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? And they were shocked. And they got quiet. Where's Jesus in all of this? Because people that want to put other people down so that they can be lifted up, these are the kind of people that Paul is talking about. And there's plenty of people out there who have had visions, real visions. They've had supernatural spiritual encounters. I'm not doubting necessarily those. But what do you do with that? You start making other people feel inferior or a second-class Christian unless they've had the experience that you have had. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 1, listen to what he says. I must go on boasting, though there, there's nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions. And revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. He's talking about himself. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on be, my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. 
but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Now get this, verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. What an interesting verse from Paul. So many incredible supernatural experiences with the Almighty God. And he knows the danger for himself. The danger is he will start being puffed up. What does God do? He actually gives him grace. And that grace came in the form of physical affliction in his flesh. How serious was it? I think it was really serious. I think it was something that Paul struggled with literally every day. Why? Because it says three times, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And actually, it was God's grace in that. And Paul saw it. Because you and I know, when we go through incredible hard times, what do we do? We cling to God because we have nowhere else to go. And unfortunately, when things are going really well and we don't have any problems and we're really, really healthy, we start running our own way. We start running in our own strength. But when we're in pain, when things are difficult, we are desperate for God. And when we're desperate for God, we're on our knees before God. And when we're on our knees before God, His power, His glory is able to flow through us to accomplish his purposes in his way. And that's what Paul testifies. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Credible testimony of Paul. So unlike these people that are being described in Colossians who are using whatever spiritual uh, experiences they've had to further their own fame or fortune or whatever it is. And so we pick it up again. And we find out in verse 19, what's the real issue? What's the real problem with these people? The problem is that they have lost track of who the head is. Verse 19, not holding fast to the head 
from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. See, the beautiful thing is that we come here and when we're worshiping together, we understand that as we enter the doors, we only have one boss, don't we? We only have one master. There's nothing that we brought with us into this room that has any credit or any value except that we are simply children together of the living God. And the picture here is a wonderful picture of the body again, how we're growing together, how we're interlaced together, how we're helping one another. And the different gifts that we have we're using for one another. And all of that because we're not looking at one another, but we're looking at Jesus. And if you do something really cool and really great, I said, praise God, thank you, Jesus, that you gave this person that gift. And you say, thank you, God, that you gave me the gift. It's not about me. And so we're growing together, intertwined like that, and it works when we're all focused on the head. But as soon as we get our eyes off of the head and we start to put it on ourselves or we start to put it on our opinions... then we start going down the road of works. Because if we take all of that out of it, all the works out of it, all we have left is that we're sinners together, saved by grace. And that's enough. And that's that power of God. So he goes on in verse 20. If with Christ... You die to the elemental spirits of the world. Why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things, things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. It's a great question. Why? We've moved. We've been transferred from darkness over to light. We are holy. We are blameless. In God's eyes, covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, why would we ever go back under law and put an emphasis on these other things? That's what Paul is asking these, these new young believers. Verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And I think this is a really valid point Paul is bringing out. We could take the example of fasting. We all know that fasting is biblical. We all know that fasting is good. Fasting is something that probably is part of our lives sometime in our history or presently. Fasting. But if we get to the point where we say that fasting is part of your salvation or fasting is something you must do if you want to keep going with God, we've gone too far with it. And the reality is is that if we think that if I go into my room for three days and I fast, that somehow that fasting is going to have some kind of merit... We've missed the point. 
what fasting does is points us to Jesus. Gets us close to Jesus. Where Jesus hears our heart and our prayer to where we're willing to say, I'm going to put aside food and drink and whatever. I'm going to put that aside because I love you more than I love food. And before I love drink and I'm going to come before you and God. And it's that point where the power is. It's not in just doing a work. And that's what he is bringing out here. You know, when we come to gather together here, you know, we're not coming for a program, are we? We're coming for a person. We're not coming for a social gathering, but for a family gathering where Jesus is the head. We didn't come here to experience gifts, but to experience the giver of the gifts. And we didn't come here uh, to hear a preacher's words, but we came here to meet with the eternal word. And we're not here to point people towards doctrines or practice or behavior. We are here to point people to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul is communicating in this chapter 2 to those young believers. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And as we walk in Jesus and we look to Jesus, we're going to be on the right track. But when we get off track, when we start looking at the things of men, the tradition of men, the other opinions, we can get in trouble by doing that. So brothers and sisters, let's just keep our radar up. Let's not let anyone take us captive. Let's not let anyone judge us. Let's not let anyone disqualify us. But let's keep our focus on Jesus. And let's just rejoice and just say, you know what? You want to call me a sinner? You're right. But I'm saved by grace. And in God's eyes, I'm holy. I am blameless. I'm going to be with him forever in eternity. I'm the apple of his eye as his child. What more in the world would I need from you? Therefore, we don't let other people put things on us. Father God, we thank you for this incredible truth that you have given to us about who Jesus is. And Father God, we, we want to take clearly the warnings that you're giving here. Lord, we, we confess to you, we too easily let people judge us. We let people bind us. We let people put falsities. We, we, we walk almost willingly back into men's traditions. So God, we just ask for your forgiveness for that. Help us to stand in the freedom that you've given us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.